You are listening to Living in the End Times with Amos and X, a podcast about politics and prose, theology theory, hijinks and pranks, and the everything and nothing to come.
Evening, X. <laughs> Good evening, Amos. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm sick, man. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm not that sick. That's right. You, just, have, you have typhoid. I do. Uh, you know, Oregon Trail style, but uh, it's it's cool. It's not, you know, it's not dysentery. Why is it typhoid, not typhus? Do you know that? I don't know question. the difference. I should, you know, I work in a healthcare sort of institution. I should know that, but I don't. <laughs> so, uh, I just do propaganda. That's all. Oh, yeah, that's true. You've been a propagandist for the medical field for a long time. Uh, on, on and off. On and off for, yeah, upwards of several years now. Well, in the interim, you were an um, ideologist. <laughs> Agent provocateur. Uh, well, yeah. against their against their profit-driven, like you were pushing for. Right. Uh, you know, left-wing approach to healthcare, go. I would assume. I wasn't in your... Your classes, but oh yeah, you're referring to the specific healthcare yeah. industry course. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, I was you know without without being so explicit about it, trying to advocate for Medicare for all. You know, ten years ago, right. et cetera. And we see where that got us. Yeah. But, uh, <clears throat> so, okay. Speaking of which, before we get into the meat and potatoes here, um, on that note, there was we were talking about. Oh, uh, so there's just. This is this like Facebook or Instagram personality who's this big. Uh, I think he's a bodybuilder, but he looks like he's not like cut up. He's just huge. Um, he does all these kind of funny videos where he'll like. He, he takes this kind of what seems like a traditional patriarchal um, perspective and then he kind of flips it like, you know, about like. Like like bullying is cowardly and stuff like that. Um, and then, so, but he, he did kind of get into some reactionary stuff and I can't remember the topic, but in this secret Vikings self-deprecating fan group, we were (laughs) talking, we were joking, we were joking about, yeah, well, this is the secret part. Isn't redundant. Um, we, I will be redundant because it needs (laughs) to be said. Uh, we were joking about like toxic masculinity Mm because I came, Oh, he was responding to the Gillette, Add controversy mm-hmm. probably in favor of masculinity and so i was talking about how uh you know regarding the steroids he's most definitely on like uh having an enlarged heart and a non-functioning liver <laughs> probably pretty toxic <laughs> and then so somebody posted this really uh like stupid meme that was clearly like pulled from a, a sh- picture of some he looked more like a hipster than a country guy but like in his pick up with his flannel on and like a coffee cup and it said something like he's like you ever just sit in your truck and come and then so i was like okay how much uh arthrosclerosis is in that cup (laughs) (laughs) that's what i was going to say when you mentioned the steroids doesn't that essentially shrivel your testicles to nothingness uh well temporarily Mm -hmm. will be the so if you're if you're on testosterone cycle it'll yeah, it will shrink your balls temporarily because they're basically because they're not doing anything. More, worse than the North Dakota winter. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> right, not the not the space they take up, but the actual physiological <laughs> okay. size. Um, but it'll come back. But that's what's interesting about steroids is if they're done right, like they're actually healthy for men over uh, forty. There's no downside. You just uh, said the magic word. <laughs> yeah, I'm a forty-one-year-old male, and right. I need something. I mean, like I, you know, once I hit that. Well, I don't. I think it's over forty. Maybe it's like mm-hmm. forty-five. But I'm pretty sure that there's basically it's all upside if you're doing yeah. it in a controlled way. Obviously, there's ways to do it in a really 
dangerous way, right. but you look at somebody like Arnold or Stallone or something yeah. like, I don't know if they're still du- juicing, but they're still cut up and they're like yeah. 70 yeah. or what, 60. I don't know. Frank Thomas is a uh, shilling oh, for that Frank stuff Thomas. on, uh, on TV. I see the ads for his testosterone drug. Oh my gosh. That's Frank Thomas. No. Yes. That's him. Go ahead. Excuse me. Are you Frank Thomas? Yes, I am. I bet you get recognized a lot. I was a pretty good ball player. You were? Some people thought so. Oh, that's that's depressing yeah, because that stuff's probably not safe. No, but. and he was he was amazing. Oh, I love yeah, yeah, I love Frank Thomas. He was like, I, so my my baseball like idols were kind of like more surgical. Like, sure. um, obviously, I liked like so I came up in the '90s, and so it was like obviously like Ken Griffey Jr. and stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was more into pitchers, and Greg Maddox was just like the amazing. absolute like the top of yeah. the food chain in of all time. I mean, prior to that, no, it was Nolan Ryan was my favorite player, yeah. but, um, which I mean, Nolan Ryan's like sort of a different beast, which is totally okay. But I mean, you got a motherfucker who's like, going to like f- fist fight on them. He's going right. to win fist fights Absolutely. at like 50 years old. Yeah. I mean, you can't fuck with that. <laughs> you don't mess with Texas, baby. <laughs> But uh, anyway, so <clears throat> one time I read this profile of Greg Maddox, and I think it was after his like fourth Cy Young Award or somewhere in there, and th- they were talking about like how much of a student of the game he was, mm-hmm. and uh, talking to another pitcher on the Braves when they were being the bullpen, you know, when he was, wasn't starting, he was so good at like reading what was happening that there were like three times where he's like, they're gonna. He's gonna fall, fall, foul a ball right at our heads, and two out of three times it happened. Wow! <laughs> I was gonna say that uh, I mean, that's amazing for one, but that uh, sort of is it late '80s, early '90s era. Uh, Atlanta Braves pitching staff was just unbeatable. Yeah, John Smoltz and all those guys, and they couldn't win a World Series. Yeah, like, I so for whatever reason, I I can't explain this, but once the Braves lost to the Twins in the World Series, and we're because Kent Herbeck cheated. Now we're talking. Yeah. Oh, let's let's throw some grenades. Let's Please expand. In 91, what happened? Oh, absolutely. I forget the name of the... Was it the Braves? This wasn't the Cardinal series. It was no, Braves, it was the Braves. Right? So I forget the, the batter, but he, he hit the ball. He ran toward first, and it was sort of a... Would have been an infield single of sorts, oh, okay. but uh, some infielder from the Twins threw it to first base where Kent Herbeck... H R B E K, which I don't know. I don't know that's like sl- Slovenian or something, but... Yeah, we... No vowels. He shouldn't be here. <laughs> And he's quite the fisherman now. But in any case, he basically, oh, ran into the batter, kind of lost his balance, caught the ball from the other infielder and basically pulled the batter off the bag <laughs> with the ball in his glove. The umpire called the, the batter out. Oh, okay. And, of course, Braves fans flipped, saying that right. like, that's illegal. You, you're, you're a cheater. You pulled him off the bag, but it was never... Uh, it was never sort of uh, reversed, and of course the series would end up going toward the Twins in the end, and the Braves, I think, still basically blame the Twins for cheating. Oh, that's understandable. Yeah. I, that almost makes me respect him a little more now. Uh, I always hated Ken Herbeck for a little I don't know. Is it Eddie, not Eddie Guardar- Guardado, but uh, uh, I forget the name of the, the, the player, but he used to say, if you ain't cheating and not trying. Right. This is like a Cubs player or something. Yeah, and I, I can get with that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, my point bringing that up was, after the Braves lost to the Twins, and I was, of course, a Twins fan because I, I was, like, like what, 91? I was nine years old, so why wouldn't I be? Yeah. But once they lost to the Twins, then I became a Braves fan, like yeah. Die Hard. Um, and Die Hard it was. Like, it was five straight years of, like, either losing World Series or losing um, National League Championships Series. 
Yeah. Um, it's like being a Vikings fan. Yeah. And then they finally won one. And unfortunately, it was just like a really, it was a really traumatic time in my life because of just some weird shit that was happening in middle school. And so I kind of got like all my friends turned on me for basically no reason uh, the week that the Braves won the World Series finally. Mm-hmm. So it was really fucking, it was them winning was as traumatic. Yeah. It was matched the trauma that I was experiencing. So that was rough. Um, that's a for, that's a formational sort of yeah. experience. Right. It was kind of horrifying, uh, all of it. But uh, what's formational, though? The, well, just just junior the, high? Just, well, yes, yeah. but the your team winning and suddenly all your friends hate you. That would, yeah. I imagine that would just really shift the way you think and act as, a, as an adolescent. Kind of, well, yeah, I mean, but they weren't doing it because of the, the oh. Braves. I'm saying it was, it, it was separate. That's why it was oh. weird. It just okay. ha- happened to coincide. Um, but I think now that you mentioned it, I think that kind of, I stopped watching baseball after that. Yeah. And it might have just been because it was associated with that Too trauma. Painful. Yeah. For what it's worth, it's Eddie Guerrero and or Mark Grace who are, made that oh, quote Mark famous. Grace. If you, uh, Mark Grace is like the only man. Cub that I ever liked. Yeah. Well, Sam, Mark, Sam, Sam Sosa. Ryan Sandberg? Mm. I mean, I probably yeah. liked him but not anymore. Yeah. Sammy I, Sosa, though. I agree with Sammy Sosa. Yeah. Who is, what is he? He's Caucasian now, isn't that what happened? I, I don't know. Some, he, I don't know enough. something. That's interesting. Like I, Michael Jackson? Or he just has re- uh, that disease where you lose your pigment? I don't think so. I'll have to look it up now because I'm talking about stuff I don't know anything about. That's In any case, we can, we can move no, on. But. No, we're not moving on. <laughs> <laughs> you can't throw a grenade like that. You're right. Uh, uh, all right, Sammy Sosa. Okay, Google. Who is Sammy Sosa? I'm going to Wikipedia if that's all right. That's of course. Where else would you go? There um, must be more to that story. Yeah. but I'm not going to look it up right now. Right, right. Well, uh, yeah, I wonder. I mean, the Dominican Republic is like it's the half of whatever Hispaniola that's yeah. not Haitian, right? Um, which was more like Haiti has more revolutionary history than the Dominican Republic. Right. And it's more uh, like explicitly black or right. African. Yeah. And that's history. part of the, there's like, I think yeah. a racism element. So I wonder sure. if that's a cultural part of it. Maybe. I don't know. Um, yeah. The, I mean, Caribbean relationship with baseball in the U S is interesting, mm-hmm. obviously because Fidel Castro was, wasn't he drafted by the pirates or something, something like, like that. that. And yeah, he, so we would have had a different 20th century. I know if, had he just said, ah, fuck it. It might have just delayed <laughs> things a little bit. There's a, there's a really interesting, a really good movie about the Cuban Revolution um, with, I think, Benicio Del Toro. Oh, Shea? He plays uh, Shea, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, but I don't know if it was... There's like a couple different ones. Mm-hmm. Or it's a, it's a two-parter. Well, no, there's, yeah, there's a two-parter, but there's also like a TV show, I think, oh, okay. too. It's like really weird how it, they did it. I don't know if it's a... If it's a vignette in there, or it probably is. You're probably right. Anyway, what was so, like, kind of shocking and earth-shattering about that was to watch, like, they were just hanging, like, so Chan, um, and it is, it's Che. It's not Che, it's Che. All right, fair enough. Because uh, the reason is, so his name's Ernesto Guevara, the reason his nickname is Che is because in Argentina, that's like a, that's like dude. 
Yeah. And so he's Argentinian. And so I think they were saying to kind of fuck with him at first, but then it obviously like took on its own Stuck. life. Yeah. Um, which is a nice association for so this like Argentinian culture being associated with the most like prominent revolutionary figure of like the, you know, Western hemisphere right. uh, <clears throat> in the 20th century. So, but anyway, in the film, like it's clear that like, Castro and Che and his crew, which was very small, I think whether they take over the country with like 50 troops or it something. It was not like that. much, yeah. yeah. Um, obviously, there's a, a political opening to do something, but what was kind of like earth shattering, terrifying watching it, and I mean that in a positive sense, that we've discussed like the opening of the abyss in a revolutionary moment was th- they were just functionally sitting there, mm-hmm. effectively deciding to overthrow the government without this you know with without a huge military presence without anything except like revolutionary will more or less and watching that staged is because you know they're just wearing like they're wearing like hawaiian shirts and like they're just guys like (laughs) um, yeah yeah pretty much and so um so it's interesting that we have like we draw a lot of baseball talent historically from uh the caribbean Mm -hmm. even though I mean, specifically Cuba and the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. More so, it's interesting, it's not in Haiti since it's the same climate. And mm-hmm. that's part of, I'm sure, why we get baseball players from those parts of the world because it's always temperate so they can play all year yeah. round and stuff yeah. like that. Um, what was I going to say? Okay, we got off track with Sammy Sosa. but <laughs> I mean, off track from our baseball discussion. Yeah, right. Uh, but it got us to the discussion of the left, nonetheless. Right. As it should. Um, okay, so should we get into it here? We should. I was going to say, you meant, you bring up Che, and maybe it's not a Che for this episode. Maybe it's another episode of its own. But um, I think it would be interesting uh, to pursue this notion that uh, Che was a physician, right? Uh, France Fanon, we know, was a physician. We know about Lacan. We know about Freud. I mean, mm-hmm. this notion that... Um, some of the most, not only leftist uh, sort of icons of the 20th century, but philosophers, how they were, they were guys, these guys were doctors right, and mm-hmm. physicians. I, I, that's, that's been interesting to me to no end, and I right. want to talk about that. It doesn't have to be right now. No, we could talk about that. No, anyway. Uh, so that's interesting, and that might lead us into this discussion of what we're going to do today. Yeah, so... <clears throat> like, what do you make of that, Amos? Yeah, I've thought about it, and I've thought about that in the context of... I've had like a split kind of... Uh, trajectory in terms of thinking about like if if I were to like t- unfortunately going to grad school is such like a huge financial undertaking it yeah it requires years of consideration in my view um, other people are just like fuck it and I respect that but I can't mm-hmm. I don't think like that so I can't do that <laughs> but um, like I've wanted to go to medical school for a long time mm-hmm. but <clears throat> it's so it's such a conservative field in terms of like uh, just how things are done and my fl- in the U.S. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Like, it, in Cuba, it would be, I would probably be a lot happier doing primary care because it's mm-hmm. very community-oriented and, like, that's... And maybe, the, and I hadn't considered this until you just brought this up, maybe the reason Cuba has such an amazing medical system is precisely because Che was instrumental to the revolution and mm-hmm. made it a priority to develop that sort of system after the fact. Um <clears throat> But a system, you know, focused on patient care, focused on 
best outcomes and stuff like that. I, I'd probably skew more toward research and stuff mm -hmm. anyways, which is fine. But I, I think, but that being said, like day to day, there's not, that's not the, that's not the system that we're in. And so what happens I think is doctors are made to be like made to act in a stupid way. Not that they're stupid people. They're obviously not. <clears throat> they're smart and committed and dedicated and probably passionate about helping people, at least to a degree, um, or at least being, you know, passionate about being good at their jobs. But the the system doesn't allow for right. for that to be kind of expressed in a way that's... That uh, takes the passion out of them. Yeah, right. And then we see a lot of, like, now at this point, I think, what, something like 51% of medical school graduates or the wish they hadn't gone because of the finan crushing financial burden. And mm -hmm. I think just having to work in this healthcare system, it's just yeah. terrible. So that, that was always like kind of a, that was the big, like it made me feel like death to consider what that would right. actually be like. Um, and then on the, obviously the other like main trajectory is a more humanities like base, like, interest in film and literature and philosophy and politics and shit like that. So I can, at some level I can relate to it, but I think the easy, the simplest like articulation of why there's, why the, some of the most radical people that shaped the second half of the 20th, post-war 20th century in the West, Fanon, Lacan, <clears throat> and Freud would be pre-World War II. True. Or maybe even Paul Farmer, you could add an American partners in health guy. I'm not. Who's that? I'm He's an anthropologist, a Harvard professor. His brother was Sting of the WWE. Hmm. In any case, uh, yeah, he was. Uh, he's he's written extensively Another about wrestling Haiti. connection. Uh, exactly. <laughs> he's written extensively about Haiti and is very very critical of American oh, foreign policy. Oh, okay. Et cetera. Okay. So he's kind of like the American Peter Hallward or something. Sure. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. So the but I th anyway. So I th so why 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 these political figures on the left? Why are they doctors? Zizek had made, has made an argument about, like, he's talked about how Kafka, um, Wallace Stevens, T.S. Eliot, I think somebody else, they had, like, they had these kind of, like, accounting banker-type jobs sure. in, during the day. And then, you know, and then when they weren't working, they were, um, you know, writing. They, they were, like, these huge literary figures. Right. Uh, and specifically with Eliot and Wallace Stevens, they were like, they're poets. And so Zizek sort of turns around the common sense reading of this, which would be like, oh, they need, they like, they needed this bank job to like constrain all the, um, all the, the sort of, I don't know, whimsy of, uh, the abstraction of poetry and all this stuff. And Zizek says, no, it's that they needed the discipline of, working at the bank and doing that sort of thing because telling the truth is hard because you can't just do it. You need, you know, it's hard work to focus on that and that it should be regarded as such. And so I think there's, there's an argument for the rigor involved with the medical profession in terms of learning processes and mm -hmm. uh, understanding diseases and what even like medicine is. I mean, it's not a science. Mm -hmm. It's, <clears throat> it's like, it's all, it's like tradecraft, basically. It's an art. Uh, I don't know if it's on, I I don't agree with that, sure. but it's uh That's one of the cliches. Yeah. I think it's more 
like I had talked to, there's a professor locally who was, uh, had been in med school, but then became, got an English PhD. And then, mm-hmm. so I was taught, it was when I was most seriously considering med school and I'd kind of run through all the counter arguments that she was putting toward it. Like she wasn't against it, but she was like, you know, just so you know, like you're only going to get to do the shit that's interesting to you 5% of the time. Uh, it's not, uh, like there's basically no, it's a tech job. It's not like a philosophical endeavor or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of which I had sort of already taken for granted in my thinking about it. But I think she was right to be pointing this out. But <clears throat> the the I think it's almost for that reason that it's useful because it it demands a certain rigor and the stakes mm-hmm. are high and very real. And so as a result, that I think that fairly easily translates to political engagement if we're taking it seriously. Sure. And so it's almost like that sort of rigor uh, in that particular way. And I'm not, I'm not so much talking about, like, I like the Motorcycle Diaries film, but what I don't like is the sentimentality of, mm-hmm. like, Che's medical engagement. Like, it's a little bit too well, sentimental, but it's, it's feels like it's cheating a little bit. Like, Oh, he, he wants to be with the people. So that's why he becomes a revolutionary. But the interesting moments of that movie are not when he's at the leper colony and he's, he's willing to just work with people and he's not afraid of getting infected. What's interesting to me is when he's, uh, he's riding, he, he's riding along with these Bolivian people who are really poor and they're trying to work in the mine and then the the guy who's running the mine is choosing workers for the day because they're not unionized or anything like that and they they won't let this guy work and Che like freaks out at him and he's like throwing rocks at the truck and like it's clear like there's this violent edge to like he doesn't see this as a problem of negotiation he sees this as a problem of power that seems to be the more um significant element of like Che's engagement because there's that <clears throat> that quote about where he says something like you, this kind of paradox I, I'm not going to quote it directly but something to the effect that like although it may seem strange or hokey or corny or something uh, revolutionaries are motivated by f- deep feelings of love but that love is turned into this like cold calculated um you know, action mm-hmm. in order to basically change the power dynamics such that love can be instituted. Uh, and she deals with that to some light it, or repeatedly in some places. And so I think, <clears throat> which is to say like for a doctor to be effective, they do have to be kind of ruthless. Like, you know, like in the show house where he's, he doesn't care about the patients as people. And the reason is that I mean, aside from you know personal whatever personality we could call it pathology, I don't know if I would. Um, he, his argument is that we shouldn't care about him because it will it will bias us in the ways that maybe could cost the person their life. And so, I think serious leftists understand that that's that's what's at stake. That we're not in this. The the people I think who get burnt out and who get hurt on the left are the ones who are not in it for principles reasons. They're in it because they want to feel better or they want to help other people feel better. And those are not bad motivations, but they will not sustain a person over decades of loss of loss in the sense of like, we keep losing at some level, Mm -hmm. um, in the postmodern period. 
And so <clears throat> I think that there's an argument to be made for the, the level of rigor that's instilled with that training and practice. And I mean, you know, just to, to be clear, Lacan hated being a doctor. Um, he was not interested in it, but we obviously see in his, uh, in his practice as a philosopher, as a psychoanalyst, like what he was aiming at was to formalize Freud's insights. And I don't think that level of abstraction would have been possible without some version of rigor. And it, it, the fact that it was done outside of academia is also, or outside of, you know, just simply formally being like a professor is, is interesting as well. I'm not disagreeing with you, but I think it's interesting that, again, me being on the inside of a medical college and sort of hospital system in, in various ways, um, that that's we're seeing the opposite now insofar as the medical schools um, and maybe even the hospitals, too, are trying to, um, I guess, encourage their students and or their faculty to be more, to see the patient as a human being and try to identify with them on sort of, I mean, not identify with them on an emotional level, but they say, you're, every, you know, every sort of commencement I go to or white coat ceremony is, remember, you're not treating a cancer. You're treating a human being and a patient, and you need right. to understand that they have emotions and all this stuff. And that's true, and I don't think that's bad, but um, the result, I mean, the reason I think they're beating that into students now, that um, attitude, is because so many patients, I think for good reasons, have sort of turned, tuned out of this sort of mainstream medical establishment, mm. at least in America, because they... That it's either not effective or they just see that they feel like they're not being listened to by these physicians. Right. Um, and so, uh, so there's a, there's sort of a schizophrenia there with regard to how, what we're telling our physicians they should be doing, how they should be treating patients versus what's more effective if I'm hearing you right. Yeah. Well, I mean, <clears throat> oh, I've, I've been made aware of some of that, like, oh, well, been made aware. I mean, I've read stuff about why that's happening. Sure. And one of the reasons is this doesn't, uh, this is sort of in line with what I'm saying. Um, so traditionally, well, the reason that that rigor was required scientifically or whatever, like in terms of assessment and diagnosis Evidence and stuff, based, yeah. it was precisely because um, some agent needed to be analyzing things along those lines. Sure. And if they didn't do it right, then the patient could die. Right. Uh, meaning like if the, if the, so if the doctor, the argument would be if the doctor was too worried about uh, palliative measures, just for example, then they would maybe avoid certain treatments that sure. would seem more brutal, even though they would be effective. Sure. I, I don't know how much that actually happened, but I mean, one could make, one could argue that that's the bias is would be to avoid that. Um, but now, one of the reasons they're encouraging more humanities people to go into medicine and that bedside manners taking precedent is t two reasons. One is a lot of the diagnostic stuff is being automated totally. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so, you know, <clears throat> if, if 80% of diagnostic and, and we're talking about calculated reason here, we're not talking, I'm not just talking about the actual like tests, all that has been automated for longer, mm -hmm. but I, I think uh, like computer programs have they can outperform radiologists sure. at like lightning speed. <clears throat> Diagnosing, yeah, certain conditions. And so, like that, that specific, like the actual science of it has sort of been automated and outsourced. And so, the doctors presented with a likelihood, a sheet of likely, given the symptoms they punched in, a sh sheet of likely 
diagnoses and this is necessary because, you know, one of the problems is like, there's so much medical research that doctors can't keep up with it. Mm -hmm. Like a year, every year, um, every successive year that someone's in medical school, like some, you know, exponentially higher rate of research has come out that they need to bridge themselves of. And then you have practicing physicians who aren't, there's no way they could keep up with, you know, doctors have been doctors for 40 years. They're not going to be able to keep up with everything. Right. Um, (laughs) Or maybe anything at some level. That's why it's called medical practice because it's, it for so long wasn't evidence based at some level. It was based on practice and what they'd done before. So anyways, um, now that all that can be automated, the, what's important in terms of patient interaction is that bedside manner and having, making sure the patient is heard and feels safe and stuff like that. But there's even an empirical basis for that, which is that they're finally taking really seriously the degree to which stress inside and outside a clinic setting contributes to healing or not. Like there's this guy on Joe Rogan who is a, he's a medical doctor, but he does a lot of like holistic stuff and he wrote, I think he wrote a book about the placebo effect and he's trying to like encourage people in medicine and outside of medicine to stop talking shit about the placebo effect because it's real and it's really effective. Mm-hmm. And Joe Rogan in his, you know, sort of dumb way was like, Oh, why can't we just make a pill of that? And he's like, no, that's, that's what I'm saying for real though. Like if we can just sort of capitalize that on that, like they're finding like these crazy studies where like, in the ambulance, if somebody's in a rough shape and the the paramedics say out loud things like, oh, he's not going to make it, that can actually kill the person yeah. because wow. even if they're unconscious, they hear it and then their body just starts to kind of like give up. But if, if, there's, a, if there's active encouragement and stuff like that, then <clears throat> the likelihood of survival radically increases because the body's always healing itself. So this guy's big thing is about, about back pain. So this is very contentious, uh, contentious subject because nobody medical science doesn't have much they could do with it except try and medicate it with opiates or whatever or exercise. But there's been a lot of studies that demonstrate you can take you can take scans of people's backs and they look like they should just be in pain 24 hours a day. Like it's just super fucked up. You don't even know how they're walking. They don't feel anything. And then other people with chronic back pain. Um, you look at it and there's nothing structurally wrong at all, but they cannot get rid of it. And so there, he was recommending this sort of, this crazy, like sort of, it sounds like hippie shit, but it, it, it works, I guess. Like basically you're listening to these lectures and it's like, I don't know if it's like neuro-linguistic programming, but it's convincing you directly that you can solve the back pain. It's basically just in your head and it works. Like a lot of people have a lot of success with this. So um, the, it, it's sort of taking the, the notion of that rigorous step further and saying like, well, how far can we go with it? Mm-hmm. And this was always my, I got into a debate, an intelligent debate um, a few years ago when I had posted and I was doing it, you know, kind of provocatively, but I also agreed with it. Like I was like, medical science is no shit. And somebody's like, well, you know, kind of like that's like you can't say that because look at all this stuff. And I'm like, 
medical science knows some things and we can do more than we used to be able to, but we don't have the ability to like intervene on this, the most simple, like the common cold or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, these very pervasive and problematic <coughs> ancient things. Yeah. I mean, and like heart disease, like all we just, we have tools to try and like throw at the wall, but it's not, we're not designing systems. We're just finding shit that like, how do they, the notion of designer drugs is really important, um, but it's it's kind of might be hard for people to comprehend how stupid the the system of finding drugs is now. Like we just have a list of compounds we know won't kill people, and then we just try all those things on everything. Now that's not a terrible move, but we're not we're not able to get our, our hands around it. Like once we get to the other side of that, and this is coming, we'll be able to design drugs and treatments to treat specific things. Mm -hmm that that's a much more powerful tool and i don't blame medical science for not getting there i'm saying we need to s realize that these these are not these experts are only doing the best they can with very limited tools right and thankfully one of the things that's happened as the internet's opened up uh i guess exploration for everyone is the people who have the diseases now they're kind of in the driver's seat um this was happening a few years ago with paraplegics. They, they were getting together and kind of organizing. Uh, they were the ones designing the prosthetics, uh, ultimately. And this can, this can become very direct as 3D printing technology gets better and stuff like that. But, like, doctors know less about the diseases now than the people who have them because the people who have them are, you know, they become experts just by way of trying right. to figure out what works. And that's a positive situation. Uh, we seem to be able to take the next step and... Uh, <laughs> figure out uh, through, you know, these massive troves of data and AI and that kind of thing going forward, you know, what's the best approach. And so it, it's interesting that the humanities side of it is coming more into direct play. Uh, and so what's the relationship between humanities and patient care? Well, if I've, if I've spent years learning how to talk, learning how to think, analyze arguments, learning how to understand how language is working, learning how to see things from different perspectives, it's going to be easier as a practitioner to see, you know, empathize at a functional level. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's, there's a certain rigor in that as well. It's just a different form. And it's, this is, this is probably a better situation mm -hmm. for that reason. But it is an, it's an interesting distinction because, um, because of this question of like, why, why revolutionaries, doctors or something. But then the, there's this, the most basic, obvious reason which would be like well they want to help people mm -hmm. and if they're serious about it and they're honest and principled they're going to understand that most of the time that means revolutionary action right they'll go beyond the just basic basic care technical stuff right. patient care and start thinking on a higher level ethical level or right. philosophical beyond the liberal blackmail of pure positivism and individual sort of action sure. as the end-all be-all right there you go so we could talk more about that, but I think we were very interested this week, too, in, um, I guess, some exchanges that a couple of our freshman uh, congresswomen in Washington had with these establishment folks uh, at, at hearings of various sorts that were incredibly fascinating, um, and some tweets, too, that came out of uh, Ilhan Omar and then Alexandra 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, too, was mm -hmm. got into it uh, with, um, I forget who it was, but someone about campaign finance and basically just laid out, this is how the system works on camera right. in a committee hearing and just sort of obliterated the corruption within Washington, which was amazing. Right. Um, and just by way of articulating it openly. That's right, in just a direct, factual way. Um, so that blew me away, and then again, the Ilhan Omar stuff. What's going on there is, again, she tweeted this or that. I don't have it she, in front she of me. She retweeted Glenn Greenwald's tweet. Okay, about, about uh, the American-Israeli Political Action Committee, right? Right. Um, and I, again, um, bo both, of, both of those sort of comments or those exchanges have sort of drawn fire for these, uh, toward these two women in very interesting ways that sort of indicate the... I guess the seriousness of what they're saying or seriousness right. of them as candidates mm -hmm. or, or politicians, which we haven't seen you and I probably in our lifetimes, which is no, fascinating. Not, not in any way that anyone was paying attention to, right. I wouldn't say. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it'd be interesting to, before we get to, we can take it case by case, but I was, as you say that, I think about like people like Paul Wellstone sure. or a uh, senator, a Minnesota senator who was, very deeply involved with labor struggles mm -hmm. in Minnesota um, leading up to his sort of whirlwind Senate win. He kind of came out of nowhere and mm -hmm. hijacked. He just exploited sort of a gap in the political landscape, thankfully. And he's a very progressive senator, like mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders kind of stuff. And then he was killed mysteriously in a plane crash. But even before that, wasn't he basically attacked with chemicals or pharma—not pharmaceuticals, some sort of—I uh, don't know—fungicide um, or insecticides? Oh, in wow. I don't. South I don't know or that. Part. And the question was whether this you know, some agency that was not of that country's origin sort of ordered it or helped participate in. Right. Well, that's so. There. I mean, that just doubles it down. And I, I don't guess. have the facts in front of me here, but you know, it's like, like we don't, we don't need to go. Like, it's not even like. That's not even a conspiracy theory. It's just like, no, he got killed in a fucking plane crash, a sitting U.S. senator. That's right. not normal. That's un That doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, the weather was super bad that day, if I recall. He was flying into and out of a blizzard, basically, mm. in Minnesota, which might have contributed. But yeah. Again, I don't have the deta details. Right. It's a, It's sketchy because of who he was. You know, mm. if he was just sort of run-of-the-mill, then maybe it wouldn't have seemed as suspicious or whatever. Yeah. But sure. anyway... <clears throat> Yeah, besides, well, I, I, maybe I'll walk back a little bit what you're saying about um, not having seen it in our lifetimes. I think it's important to note yeah. that, like, so the U.S. senators from North Dakota for a long time were Kent Conrad and Byron Dorgan. Sure. Now, they weren't, they weren't progressives in the way that we define that now, I don't think, but they were definitely, they were, they were very powerful in, um, in the democratic establishment, mm -hmm. but they were powerful as people who are serious about like family farms and, um, bad trade deals. Right. And accounting just as a practice. Yeah. And I had heard a story of that. There was like this situation somewhere in North Dakota, there was like a industrial plant where there's like a chemical plant or something. There are all of these like EPA violations, but they were, nobody is enforcing this. And somebody supposedly contacted, I think Dorgan, and then they got them to basically like send in the FBI and kick the doors down and like shut this whole thing down. And my comment was, you know, this was in probably 2012 or 13. I was like, that ain't Barack Obama's EPA. No. So it's probably not Heidi Heitkamp's. Oh, you know, sort yeah, of no, not at all. Way of approaching the problem either. Right. So the um, so it's important to note the political regression since the 90s and 2000s of 
just like how, you know, and, and Obama said this, like, he's like, I would have been considered a moderate Republican in the nineties. Mm-hmm. It's the political landscape shifted so far to the right mm-hmm. since then. So, um, but in this new era of like hard right politics, masquerading as as a political spectrum as it's just gotten worse it was always like that of you know the whole neoliberal period but it's gotten worse so um so yeah to see this kind of and and i mean bernie sanders was always there but nobody is listening to him mm-hmm. um and he didn't have any exposure he didn't have social media that functions like this he didn't have this groundswell of this emergent young left mm-hmm. um that's going to either you know, that if anybody's going to save the world, it's the it's the young people, it's it's us, but also people younger than us. Right, um, <clears throat> we're the only ones who can do it, and they're increasingly powerful. And so the amount of purchase that AOC has in the American political landscape now is we've discussed is, is inspiring and shocking, and in terms of how quickly it's grown. Um, but so anyway, the yeah the AOC hearing was interesting. That video seemed to go at least a little bit viral, um, where basically she's just asking somebody to describe the. She makes herself the example. Okay, let's say I'm a bad guy in Congress. Can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? And it becomes clear that she could be totally bought off um, legally. Legally, yeah. yeah, and that it's the system incentivizes that basically. Thank you, Chair. So um, let's play a game. Let's play a lightning round game. I'm going to be the bad guy, which I'm sure half the room would agree with anyway. And, um, and I want to get away with as much bad things as possible, ideally to enrich myself and advance my interest, even if that means putting, uh, putting my interests ahead of the American people. So, uh, Mrs. Hobart Flynn. Oh, and by the way, I have enlisted all of you as my co-conspirators. So you're going to help me legally get away with all of this. So, Mrs. Hobart Flynn, I want to run. If I want to run a campaign that is entirely funded by corporate political action committees, is, that, is there anything that legally prevents me from doing that? No. Okay, so there's nothing stopping me from being entirely funded by corporate PACs, say, from the fossil fuel industry, the healthcare industry, big pharma. I'm entirely 100% lobbyist PAC uh, funded. Okay, so let's say I'm a really, really bad guy. And let's say I have some skeletons in my closet that I need to cover up so that I can get elected. Um, Mr. Smith, is it true that you wrote this article, this opinion piece for the Washington Post, entitled, These Payments to Women Were Unseemly, That Doesn't Mean They Were Illegal. Well, I can't see the piece, but I wrote a piece under that headline in the post, so I assume that's right. Okay, great. So, green light for hush money. I can do all sorts of terrible things. It's totally legal right now for me to pay people off, and that is considered speech. That money is considered speech. It's the way, the only way she can get reelected, right? uh, in a traditional sense of, like, using donors and lobbyists and all that kind of thing. Now, <clears throat> and that's wonderful. That's like whistleblowing 101. Um, and that's exactly what needs to be done. And people need to understand if they don't. I mean, on the left, I think we all know that and have known that for a long time. But it's it's unclear. It's always very... Mis- what's One of the things that's very mysterious to me in observing political discourse in the U.S. is what do people know and what do they not know? 
Um, they seem to instinctually know that all these politicians are corrupt. They know that the system doesn't work and doesn't benefit them. But then they hear this and they kind of are shocked. Right. Uh, or at least pretend to be. And maybe that's just liberals uh, who think that people have good intentions or whatever the crazy positive ar- positivist argument is. Uh, I said crazy because this has no relation to empirical reality or even their experience, I would imagine, generally, outside of like extreme bourgeois circles. But even those circles get pretty nasty, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure where that comes from. Maybe it's just a belief. But uh, Ilan Omar found the third rail of American politics, apparently. And that term gets thrown around a lot, but this is... She found it for real. And the reason I say that is she was getting attacked certainly from Republicans and certainly from Democratic Party insiders and people like Pelosi and stuff. But she was even getting attacked by Trump for this. Like, and they're all, this is the only thing I've seen them unified on. Mm-hmm. Who, what else have they been unified on? Maybe Venezuela, but even that's kind of like not, that's a little dicey. Uh, Trump asked for her, her resignation. Right. I've never, in, I've never heard, I mean, of course, Trump's done all sorts of like, at the level of uh, decorum. He's broken every rule that there is, but I've never heard of a president asking for a congressperson's resignation, an elect sitting congressperson, elected officials resignation over half. I mean, it's like half a tweet, a retweet. Right. I mean, this, this is like way beyond the pale. I don't. And I, you know, it's just not about like Trump being outrageous. It's like, that's, that's how scared they are of this being put in public. Mm -hmm. Um, the and so to contextualize this a little bit like i can't remember the greenwald's tweet but he was just pointing out that like that the israeli uh that apex as a lobby is a potent force in dc lobbying circles which means it affects how congress people behave decisions that they make uh and she retweeted it saying it's all about the benjamin's baby or something like Mm -hmm. that now, that's obviously a reference to Puff Daddy's song. Right. I, I, I mean, I think for any, for as young as she is, it has to be. Right. I mean, what else is that? The, the spin that was put on it was she's anti-Semitic because she's talking about Jews and she's talking about money. So she must mean that all Jews care about his money or that there's some Jewish plot. Mm-hmm. That's not what she said. And that's not, I, I mean, I, I understand the argument that they're making, but I think it's just a straw man. I don't mm-hmm. think... I don't think that was anywhere near what she was meant. And that's, she walked it back. She said, she apologized for the comment itself, but then said, but I'm not going to apologize for bringing up this issue because it's significant and it affects, um, you know, the U S political system or what I can't remember the quote or whatever, but, uh, she, somebody asked before she walked it back, somebody asked, Oh, who's, where's all this money coming from? Who's actually doing this? And she just says APAC. That is probably, that tweet is probably the one that um, was really touching the third rail. And there's, uh, if people are interested, there's a shocking documentary series on uh, that Al Jazeera, the, the uh, produced by Al Jazeera, the Qatari government who I think owns Al Jazeera. They were externally pressured to bury this, but it was leaked by Electronic Intifada, um, and it shows the 
extremes to which it, APAC will go in trying to influence uh, American political life. So, like, they're running mili- open, and I mean, this is admitted by Israel. This is they they have Israeli military people admitting that they're running intelligence operations on U.S. college campuses, and then this journalist gets. Th- um, works for them undercover, gets them to admit on tape that hidden cameras and stuff that that they're being that they're basically assets for Israeli intelligence. Uh, and then later they go into they get into talking about some of the uh, intricacies of how APAC influences U.S. politicians and is able to put a lot of money and power behind keeping a certain vision of Israel um, alive in the, uh, you know, it limiting the possibility of discourse around what the U.S.'s role with Israel is. Now, from the Israeli perspective, the state of Israel, um, it makes sense because the U.S. has, the U.S. is responsible for Israel's ability to exist in the Middle East. Like, as I recall, a few years ago, Chomsky was talking about how Israel literally couldn't even get food if the U.S. wasn't um, running shipments and stuff. Like, uh, were the reason they have the military they do, were the reason that they can afford the to be a nuclear power, even though maybe that's even not officially their position, mm-hmm. but um, <clears throat> it's understood. And so from a perspective of, I guess, survival as a state, it makes sense. Right. Um, the 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 severe the, the depth at which this operates is is staggering to watch the documentary is called the lobby um it's on youtube i've seen like two of the four hours <clears throat> but the for and obviously like i think greenwald was pointing out on democracy now after the fact like obviously a huge part of why Ilhan Omar is getting attacked is because she's Muslim. Mm -hmm. And so they can turn it into this question of anti-Semitism. Now, just unequivocally, I'm not anti-Semitic. We're not anti-Semitic. We, well, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Assume you agree. We take the position that criticizing the state of Israel is not to criticize Jewish people. It's not to engage in Jew hating or any of that shit. I'm totally opposed to any anti-Semitism. I think it's extremely dangerous and the left should not even flirt with it at any level, um, for a lot of reasons. But that being said, we support this, the, the plight. We we're in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Um, the conditions, I mean, I, we don't need to go into it, but listen to any Chomsky lecture about Israel, Norman Finkelstein for the last 20 years. And you'll hear the horror. I mean, a report came out a few months ago, a UN report or someone, maybe Amnesty, that Gaza would be functionally unlivable in 18 months. Unlivable. And there's all these, it's, you know, it's considered an open-air prison. Uh, there's just extreme violence, checkpoints, people can't leave. Um, that's why it's an open-air prison. There's multiple, anybody following what goes on in Palestine for any length of time will just see the sheer brutality of it. Like, Israel cut off food shipments in, create a humanitarian crisis, and then go attack with with some fake 
functionally fake pretext of be, having been attacked by quote unquote rockets, which are basically like fireworks. I mean, where are the Palestinians getting arms? It's not, that seems silly compared to like Israel's like extreme, uh, military prowess, relatively speaking. So, and these are all very serious and terrifying issues because this, if, and this is not to like let anybody off the hook because the, the problem is like if Iran attacks Israel, that could set off world war three, that could just end it all. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't think from the left's perspective, we even kind of acknowledge that, like as aggressive as Israel is and as much as they piss off the Arab world by treating the Palestinians the way that they do, they're then, and maybe this is a creation of their own doing, but like they, they are externally threatened. That's not a lie. Um, But the question is like, how volatile is the situation and what constitutes a peace process? And this is what's been killed off by the U S over and over again. Um, So this is to me, and I think this is Omar's point is what we're criticizing. What I'm criticizing is not so much Israel and their desire to protect themselves. What I'm criticizing is the opportunism of the U.S. in terms of world power. And we've created this Israel, this version of Israel and facilitated it and made it a necessity at some level. So it's it's disingenuous to point to the Israeli lobby and see it purely as some sort of um, form of Israeli politics. It's a response to a situation where they need to keep the money flowing in. And their best method to do that is to do this hardcore military intelligence stuff. Um, Is that, you know, so again, from Israel's perspective, it makes sense why they're doing it. What we should be critical of in the U.S. is the U.S.'s role in this, and I, th- I think that's, that should be Ilan Omar's position. I'm not sure if it is. Um, somebody had written, it, it had made an argument that her, the problem with her is she wasn't her statement wasn't too radical. It wasn't radical enough. It didn't go far enough in criticizing even the American dream itself and the notion of political, you know, like lobby money and like the system is set up for that. And this is what AOC was trying to establish before this all blew up. So it's interesting that it kind of came up in the same week. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I would only add to to all of that, that um, ironically, um, when, when these two individuals are attacked so, so vociferously by the center of the left and especially the right, but even the center, center left, that only serves to sort of verify exactly what they're saying, right. right? In terms of the the seriousness of this or the corruption involved and so on. Um, and I don't. I'm just trying to again, trying to understand the response from their critics. Like, do they understand that that's what's happening, or does their sort of need to sort of tamp this down and attack it and drive it out of the system uh, trump the fact that they are sort of verifying the the truth of what these women are saying, right? And it's not clear to me. Well, I think it proves the. Well, maybe I'm not understanding your quite, or sure. your observation, but like, I agree that it 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 must prove that her point because right. obviously, why would they react so strongly? Like, you know, I I just like sort of tongue in cheek, obviously. Well, <laughs> pointing out that like when Trump is demanding a resignation, he's stumping for her. Right. I mean, you know, if everybody hates Trump, 
us, which is kind of the narrative, then obviously he's he's doing our favor at some level. To for the what should scare people, I think, um, is the reflexive nature or the reflexive way in which the entire political establishment took for granted that this is anti-Semitic. Yeah. That's dangerous for everyone. And to weaponize anti-Semitism in this way does a disservice to um, Jewish people, I think. Uh, you know, like, it, because if it's not real anti-Semitism and it's being called anti-Semitism, then we cease to be able to functionally define that in political discourse. And then things get much darker in terms of, like, how... Uh, speech can be used to silence people. Um, thankfully, it, like both AOC and Ilan Omar, you know, they don't come out of nowhere in terms of like how radical they are relative to the rest of Congress. Um, they're both in safe districts. They're both in strong democratic, but they're both in democratic strongholds so they can get away with saying this shit. And that's important. It should, as it should be. Um, and the response to this sort of thing is going to define 2020. It's going to define the future at some level. And so the, the, the question should be not so much, and this is kind of, I guess what I was trying to get at, like we shouldn't cheat here. The question should not be about Israel. The question should not be about, um, identifying Israel with Jewish people. That's false. Um, the question should be to what degree does the most power, one of the most powerful lobbies in the U.S. determine what's allowed to be said publicly, and I think this is all this is doing is breaking that down. I mean, we had an off mic conversation about like, should we even, how much should we talk about this? Because my concern is, um, if I don't want to be censored, but to what degree does this put a target on our backs? And well, I'm not, I'm not overstepping like the reach of the show. I obviously it's. We're just starting out. It's very small, and that's fine. <coughs> but if we go down the path of censorship, then you know where does it end? And I don't think we have to be Puritans in terms of free speech, but we do need to at least clarify that. I think that this isn't about APAC as such. It's just APAC is the biggest, the, one of the you know maybe the strongest lobby in the country in terms of their reach and power. Um, and if that's defining political discourse and defining discourse on a show with not much reach, then how far will it go? How, how influenced by this are bigger media outlets? And then we can expand that to fossil fuel lobbies and big pharma lobbies and all that sort of thing. So this is not about Israel. This is about the power of lobbying and the corruption of the political system. And that's why AOC is right to sort of generalize this and not focus on a specific group. Um, because obviously the history of anti-Semitism is very serious and is definitive in, in terms of political life in the 20th century and beyond. I mean, prior to that, but certainly now. Um, but we shouldn't be afraid to criticize whatever you want, like people with intentions that are not in the service of, you know, the U.S. population, which is what's Congress is, uh, if anything, the House of Representatives is, is supposed to be this, the site of uh, popular representation for the country. It's the most powerful legislative body and maybe in the world um, in terms of how much money they control and all that sort of thing. And so this is that's that's why it's the third rail of American politics and why we support 
her criticisms, even though I, I mean, I think for me anyway, I agree. I agree with her, like partially walking back, at least the kind of brazenness of it in terms, sure. just to avoid the misunderstanding that yeah. it, it isn't. I mean, it, sh- it should be clarified that it wasn't anti-Semitic or intended to be. Right. Uh, that's important, but also to not shy away from the, the, the conflict. Yeah, no, I agree with the, the idea that it didn't go far enough insofar as that sort of, uh, it's all about the Benjamins. It, it wasn't a particularly focused or sort of articulate way of making that argument. Right. It lent itself to misinterpretation and manipulation, I suppose, in a yeah. way. Um, and that was maybe the problem. But I was only going to point to maybe a more local example with about some of this stuff that we could get to if you want to. Sure. Um, whereas, um, you maybe followed some of this, but there's... Um, a local media monopoly firm, which is based out of Fargo and sort of controls radio stations in these markets, Grand Forks, Fargo, Red River Valley, uh, television um, stations and uh, local newspapers, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's based out of Fargo, but it owns the Grand Forks stuff. And so only recently uh, that firm had made the decision to stop um, financing the broadcasting of local news up in Grand Forks. First, a weekend broadcast went away for local news and then the the nightly edition, too. Um, And so, um, you know, someone made the criticism on Facebook saying, oh, this is too bad. I mean, is this firm not interested in Grand Forks or its news anymore, et cetera? And the former, I guess, director of a local nonprofit responded to that on Facebook saying, yeah, man, this is, this is really terrible that this is happening. In Grand Forks, I'm, not, um, I'm sort of surprised about that firm. Do they not, again, do they not care about Grand Forks? Um, the publisher of the Grand Forks newspaper owned by, again, that Fargo firm went on the attack in, a, in an editorial and so on and maybe online defending this, per, this its organization and critiquing this person who made the critique with the nonprofit. And, you know, surprise, surprise, something like two days later, that person was removed from her Hmm. job, right? And she was already scheduled to resign, you know, in six months or four months or something. But they went in and took her off, right? And um, the the pretext is, oh, you know what? She had not been meeting goals, had not stuck to her job description, um, had been sloppy, this and that. And I don't know the degree to which any of that is true. All we know is that she openly critiqued a local media organization, which, you know, leans... Uh, is maybe fair to say center right, and she was gone the next day. She did this publicly and was, and not the next day, within a few days, was removed. And that has a lot of folks thinking. You know, I've talked to friends about this or colleagues. Like, what to the censorship point you're making? Like, what what can we say publicly and not end up getting fired or having a target on our back? And it's it's incredibly scary, right? right. And so this lo- a local attorney that you and I both know is now defending this person. To, to sue the, the the media corporation, saying you like this is this is a constitutional question. You can't just just do this. You can't lay this person off. Um, and so that's happening here in in North Dakota. Um, we'd be, I guess, naive to think it's not happening elsewhere when some of these forces mobilize themselves to sort of tamp down public discourse and just free speech. Right. Well, this is <clears throat> that's shocking. I didn't. I wasn't aware of that situation. But it's. I, I mean, well. So there's a lot of there's a lot of elements to that. Right. One is obviously media consolidation, yep. literally, directly, like right. even at the local level. So a lot of um, I, I think when people on the left talk about media consolidation, they sort of take for granted what the effects of that are, and they don't think that's transparently obvious to everyone. Um, I think it's if people want to if people want to understand like even like a, an early version of this, uh, the 
documentary version of Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman's Manufacturing Consent is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. It's life-changing, truly, in terms of understanding the stakes of political discourse in the U.S. and how far-reaching those consequences are. Not to interrupt, but I was going to say, he had some issues with being accused of anti-Semitism as well, this Forisson affair where he, he penned the oh, introduction yeah. to a French writer's uh, book, et cetera. But. Right, so well, it's to contextualize that a little bit, in France, their free speech laws are not as open as the U.S. The U.S. has like most open free speech laws in the world, basically. In France, <clears throat> anti-Semitism is illegal, functionally. Right. Right. Uh, so this guy wrote a book denying the Holocaust. He was brought up on charges. Chomsky had written the introduction, but basically by his own, in his words, this isn't a direct quote, but a paraphrase, that basically he made some banal comments about freedom of speech and why right. it's important. Uh, and then, you know, and effectively that we should be defending our opponent's right to free speech because they'll come for us. Uh, you know, it, you, you can't just pick and choose. It's, it's a question of principle. Mm -hmm. um, now, Chomsky's also said, and this is made clear in the documentary, that to even ask the question whether or not the Holocaust exists is to abandon one's own humanity. So he's not endorsing the position at all. He's rejecting the position vehemently and saying, if we're serious about free speech, we have to allow this sort of monstrous dialogue to go on because that's the nature of the beast. And the repressed always returns. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know if he'd put it in Freudian terms. But, <laughs> no. But yeah, he's, and I mean, he's been, he's been called a self-hating Jew sure. for criticizing Israel and being a vocal critic of the U.S. entrenchment in Israel. Um, but anyway, so, uh, but... In manufacturing consent, we see the, the, the methodology of controlling speech and controlling discourse. And they do some case studies about um, a certain, the way that the New York Times had covered certain, you know, the newspaper record had covered certain things, had ignored certain things, had cut out certain things uh, around particular um, military, U.S. military engagements. I can't remember the This examples. is the East Timor stuff, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I could be, I don't know if that no, might no, have been. No, no, you're right. That might have been later. Yeah. I think it was um, Cambodia. Oh, yeah, the Khmer Rouge and the co coverage of that right. issue. <clears throat> and uh, similarly, Zizek was making, Zizek had a nice, like, RT is doing this series of, like, how to watch the news things with Zizek. Um, and he's talking about fake news and how what's really dangerous about fake news is not just straight up lies. That's not really dangerous. You can debunk that. The problem is when you're reporting facts, but you're choosing, we're always selecting out facts. Even in writing about history, we're always focusing on certain things. As, as Chomsky puts it, everyone's got an ax to grind. And so just being aware of that is important. Mm -hmm. um, but these media filters that Chomsky identifies like concision, meaning like, you know, turning things into sound bites rather than giving someone five minutes to explain mm -hmm. or try and contextualize it. A complex political situation, social situation, when it's always complex. Mm -hmm. um, that's a way to control speech. Uh, Anti-communism was mm -hmm. a functional filter at that time. Interestingly, it's returning. So, because right. he he later said, "What I would change is I would have just called it something else because it was too specific." But now yeah. maybe it it's, it's, it works. Universal again. after all. Yeah. Uh, advertising adver orientation. Uh, right. So the consolidation. But yeah. So the advertising orientation meaning like. Newspapers are well, historically now. So this was written in what the late eighties or uh, eighty eight, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, so newspapers were still a huge, a, a bigger deal than they are now, or they're closing down because of the internet. 
um, internet media changing things. And I'm, I'll get to why that's even worse probably than things before in a second. But, um, with an advertising focus, that means is like advertisers control content functionally. If advertisers threaten to pull their money, the newspaper can't survive. So they'll change whatever. So the, but the, that becomes an unconscious or, yeah, uh, direct bias within the way things are being reported. For example, uh, Jimmy Dore's always making this point. Why is Boeing advertising on MSNBC? Are people buying fucking 747s? No. It's so that they can control what Rachel Maddow says and what she focuses on. Um, why is Lockheed Martin? You know, people aren't... I meet the press. Or, we're not yeah. buying military-grade drones. We're not right. even allowed to. So who the fuck are they advertising to? They're advertising to themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, at best, they're advertising to the state, uh, you know, to the U.S. government, but they're not advertising to anybody. They're just paying off the media to mm-hmm. talk about, to make sure that the quote unquote left media will not be anti-war anymore, right. um, <clears throat> et cetera. So, uh, and then, uh, yeah, consolidation. So the, the smaller number of, uh, corporations that own the media, the more and more control they have over what that media says and does. Mm-hmm. So Jeff Bezos owns the Washington post. Now he owns Amazon. He also has a $600 million contract with the CIA. Now, I think that the darkest question we could ask there is what the fuck does the CIA need $600 million worth of Amazon web services servers for nothing. It's a way to control what Amazon's, you know, bent is as well as now the Washington post. And I don't know the order of events, but I would imagine that there's an argument, uh, without getting conspiratorial, it's just a, it's sort of just deductive. Like, Maybe he bought the fucking Washington Post because of, you know, his involvement with this U.S. state. I, we, we don't know, but the fact that we can't know is a problem. And this is an argument Assange and other cypherpunks, uh, people consider, concerned with security and uh, privacy on the Internet, or talking about in this uh, book of sort of collected interviews, conversations between Assange and people like Jacob Applebaum and some other uh, cypherpunks, they were talking That's about... That's the title of the book. Yeah, cypherpunks. cypherpunks. Yeah. Um, but it's also a cryptography movement mm-hmm. from the um, 80s and 90s and 2000s. Uh, people, the people who are responsible for the idea behind Bitcoin and uh, PGP, pretty good protective email, like privacy, etc. Uh, the Tor Network, Onion, <coughs> Onion Browser... Uh, which should have was supposed to basically protect people's privacy browsing, but unfortunately there are holes in it. Anyways, in this book, they're talking about they're questioning the, and this is from like 2012, I think, questioning to what degree is can we say that Google is a corporation versus a state actor? Mm-hmm. Um, I maybe have covered some of this before, but just to reiterate because I think it's really important. The way the internet's structured, it's it's claimed that the internet is decentralized, and it can be decentralized. It can be just a, a bunch of servers spread out over the whole world, and historically, that was the purpose of the internet. Initially, ARPANET, the precursor to the internet that we find ourselves using, was a way for the military to have, in the, in the event of a nuclear attack, there was no central point of failure. Um, and so if they took out you know, air, air bases or like universities or whatever, the rest of the network would survive because it was decentralized. And so communication could continue even with, you know, half the country wiped out or something like that. 
what's happened is the the internet has been re-centralized by these huge platforms like Google and Facebook and just like Silicon Valley as such. So these server farms have <clears throat> um, these big warehouses of servers, which are kind of, I mean, to a degree required for scaling purposes. It makes it more energy efficient to, to run the internet. But what happens, what, what has happened, the way it's been set up is there are these server farms, you know, that are you know, run by Google or Amazon or Facebook or whoever owns them or rents them. But then the NSA is allowed in there too. They're allowed to sort of like just put their, just tap the, tap the line for the whole internet. Additionally, Visa's processing, for example, <clears throat> uh, as a merchant, all Visa transactions are routed through these warehouses in California, Southern California. And when I say all, I mean a transaction between two Russian, between, you know, if a Russian buys a cup of coffee at a Russian gas station, that transaction is funneled through U.S. server farms. Does it need to be? No. Is it more efficient? Absolutely not. But that's how the internet is structured. And so the question is, to what degree is Google a corporation or a state actor? And there's no way to define that anymore, you know, it, to distinguish that any longer. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, to, so how is this, you know, what's the relationship between this and media consolidation? Well, with that sort of like level of control and intrusion, we find ourselves in a scenario where since most people get their news off of Facebook if they're under the age of 70 um, or Google, then if those corporations are involved with the state directly, there's not even a pretense of distinction between even the, uh, the infrastructure, then to what degree can we say that you know, the Washington Post is objective or anything like that. Democracy dies in darkness. And uh, yeah. And like Jimmy Dore says, apparently that's th their, their, their slogan. That slogan is not a warning. It's a, it's, it's their business plan. That's right. <laughs> Describing what they intend to do. Uh, right. What they're, yeah, the, the future that they're creating. Um, so the consolidation that Chomsky is talking about is, is almost, I mean, he could have predicted it. But it's almost undreamt of how, mm -hmm. how, how huge and impossible to know. Like, we don't know if Google's colluding with Facebook. Of course they probably are at some level, or mm -hmm. Amazon. Like, they're, since they're serving different masters, one's a social media... Google's recently sent out a notification that they're, they're getting rid of their social media because it, nobody uses it, um, which is fine. So they're not really competing with each other anymore. Um, Google is search, Facebook is social, and Amazon is you know, buying shit. Um, they all serve advertisers, and we don't know. We've we've talked at length about how easy it is to manipulate um, public opinion mm -hmm. using just the way you order search results. Mm -hmm. it, it would be silly to think that these companies are not colluding with each other. Right. Uh, <laughs> except, and this is something I always point to to people: like as much of an asshole as Steve Jobs was, he used that assholeness for good. Assholery. Yeah. So the. If, you, if they're charting when these big corporations started working with the NSA or working with the U.S. state, it, Apple was the holdout. They did not start working with the U.S. state until 2012. Well, what happened then? Steve Jobs died. And I think, because Steve Jobs had said publicly, like, basically, he part of why he was telling everybody to fuck off is because he's like, these are our customers. Why would we compromise our customers for external influence? Fuck them. Mm -hmm that was a kind of the nice like punk rock thing about Steve jobs is he really 
you know, it, like he's probably pretty ghoulish in his personal life at some level, but um, he seriously was just like, he took the, the sort of utopian dimension of Silicon Valley seriously, not in terms of how he structured um, hardware. Like it wasn't, you know, hardware and software was always closed source and he wanted end-to-end -end control over that. But at the level of like, are we building the thing we want to build and are we serving our customers? Because that's what the relationship is. Taking that seriously is almost more radical mm -hmm. at some level, which is an interesting paradox because he's obviously a hyper capitalist. But um, the it's so <clears throat> when we're talking about media consolidation, the effect of this is like uh, sort of bringing it back to the Chomsky thing and manufacturing consent. Manufacturing consent for what? Well, for U.S. war crimes. For um, as Chomsky's pointed out, internal documents of the U.S government they understood that post that the the 60s did civilize the country in a radical way and that the only way to avoid further civilizing of the country meaning further popular control less business control because as Chomsky points out the business class in the US has always been they've been basically highly class conscious vulgar marxists almost in an inverse way um, they understood that the only way to control a population once the hierarchical control had been broken was to get the media to stop reporting on what was happening. So part of why Vietnam was even considered a crime among the population was because it was being reported on and people were seeing the effects of it. And in the later stages, Nixon wanted another push in Vietnam, but he was being advised internally that there was, he was risking serious social unrest to the point of like civil war. And so they pulled back. And so the anti-war movement worked they weren't, the power structure wouldn't admit that openly. I mean, they, internally they did. But, you know, and in technical right, journals and stuff like that. But the, it's important to note that victory because it's, it's understood as like, if not a failure, at least like something that the hippie movement sort of died out and that sort of thing. But um, the, if, so if they're not reporting on what's happening, they're not reporting on like Occupy Wall Street. One of the reasons it worked, the the cynical view is, oh, it's because they showed footage of white girls getting pepper sprayed. Maybe, but I I think it's more important to note that like what Occupy was doing was bringing that sit-in occupation occupation of the squares thing right to the heart of the beast. So that the, how could the New York Times ignore something that's happening two blocks from Wall Street? They can't do it. They literally can't do it. Um, and it took a while. I took a little bit of time for it to kind of get on the news, but I mean that's a good tactic in terms of like forcing the hand of power to like acknowledge what's happening. Um, <clears throat> but that's those are the sorts of things required in this situation of like total media control by what six corporations control ninety percent of the media, all the radio stations, all the local newspapers, etc. Well, what's the effect of this? Local press has normally been where big stories break because they have a lot more autonomy historically. Um, and we see that this is still happening uh, at some level. Like, So in Boston, that Spotlight movie is about the Boston Globe's team of secret reporters. Spotlight, I think, was their crew. But they would they'd be allowed to work on stories in, in secret for a long period of time so that they wouldn't get... Their cover wouldn't get blown and they were able to be more thorough and they were the reason the Catholic church pedophilia scandals was, right. were exposed recently. Um, 
is it San Antonio? Uh, I want to give credit where credit's due, but the independent Baptist churches recently have been exposed that there's just this rash of sex crimes all over the country. Um, and I, I think we've talked about it on here a little bit, but to me, like, you can draw a direct link between the Christian right, climate change denial, and, you know, the apocalypse. And so if, if something like the, this League of Baptist Churches is exposed to sex criminals in the same way the Catholic Church was, their credibility is gone if that story catches fire. If their credibility is gone, their ability to control public discourse around climate change and whether or not it's real diminishes, which opens the space for the right to be brought, folded into the fight against climate change. So these have world, you know, world historical consequences. And so <clears throat> that's why media consolidation is such an issue because you take control away from localities to report on what's happening. You can't break huge stories because everything's obviously connected in a loose kind of federated way in the U S um, at some level, but you blow it up one place, it blows up everywhere else. It opens the door. I mean, that's what Me Too was about. That's what it proved. If you could expose some people at the top, then a lot of a lot more people could come forward. Even if it's, you know, as the founder of Me Too said, sort of lost its way at this point, the, the importance of that is not, it's not going back, the toothpaste is not going back in the tube, and that's important. That's mm-hmm. what whistleblowing is. Um, and <clears throat> so, like, we don't know what we're losing if, their media control is so high and these social media platforms are so manipulatable. Like one thing I was noticing recently, my friend was getting really frustrated about some stuff on Facebook and how, how stupid people seem about certain things. And then it occurred to me that it seems like Facebook, you know, like Facebook's always manipulating what you see on your timeline. It's not a straight newsfeed. Like you can't get just everything posted by all your pages you like and stuff they select out first all, all sorts of biases that we don't even know. We know only what they admit. But what I notice is like, if I get in a fight with somebody on a thread, everybody in my friend or way more people see that thread. Mm-hmm. So the stupid, the stupidity of it promotes it. Um, and that's masked as like liking activity or something like that. But the algorithms could just as easily select for content, but they don't, they select for activity. They select for, whatever and so like facebook is a public square it's not public and it's not a public Mm -hmm. square but that's it's functionally like how people see things now by and large in terms of news and twitter i guess but it's the same problem uh it's that's hyper consolidation that's total tyranny of information because we can't even see how it's being selected the back to that the local example again this firm in question based in fargo not only do they do again control literally um TV, radio, and uh, newspaper, the print media in this re- in the region. I mean, it's eastern right. North Dakota, western Minnesota. They literally own the, again, to the Marxist sort of thing, they own the f- means of production. They right. own the printing presses themselves in several communities around mm-hmm. the region. They own the means of production, distribution of the news, at least in terms of, again, print news. Uh, maybe that's getting to be obsolete or whatever, but um, it's, it's just this complete uh, consolidated monopoly. Um, and it's... it's astounded me maybe it shouldn't for for a decade or more now that no like nobody talks about this in this in this community and that brings up the interesting example i sort of i I alluded to it someone did they're gone right they've Mm -hmm. been silenced and that's 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 horrifying um 
and it, it speaks to the truth of the problem, though, as well. Right, so. and like, and what the problem with um, with me, uh, I want to say problem with media consolidation, but the problem with control. Like, so if we have just one newspaper locally, which we do, right. um, even that alone is a problem because we don't know what's being selected out in terms right. of being understood as newsworthy locally and otherwise. So for instance, um, I, I wouldn't do a, I, I make the rounds of thrift stores cause that's kind of, that's part of like how I make money reselling stuff on the internet and whatever. Um, and so I kind of know all these people and a week or two ago, there was a front page above the fold story about how, because of that Netflix show where that uh, woman was talking about like bringing you, if it doesn't bring you joy, throw it away kind of thing. Yeah. Marie Kondo. Yeah. Which is, that's cool. I'm down with minimalism, I guess, if that's your thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but they had profiled, uh, this young woman who owns one of the thrift stores, mm -hmm. uh, in the, in the region. And so she's front page above the fold picture of her, talking about how this show is kind of like it increased donations and so right. on. Now I, I don't, I like her. She's cool and you know, more power to her, but I, you know, I, so I went in there today and I was like, Oh, you're famous. And she's like, yeah, she's like, I'm pretty much a movie star. Now. You know, I'm just joking. But, um, she was like, yeah, they didn't tell me it was going to be front page. And I was like, yeah, you're above the fold. And, and uh, I was like, yeah, I don't think they really tell people what's going to happen. Right. That's been my experience. Any press coverage I've got, you don't know where it's going to land. Um, uh, that's an editorial decision, but you know, again, more power to her. And I'm, I'm down with all this stuff. Like I'm down with people donating because their stores are using stuff. I'm down with minimalism. I'm down with all that. But is this the biggest news story right. in the world in even locally on even that day? The city. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, I don't even think she would think that right. it was, would be, you know, so it's not on her, but like, why is, why are things being covered in this way? Well, because right. there's no, we don't have control over that and there's right. no accountability really especially when these newspapers are owned um, remotely. I think they've sort of made themselves obsolete precisely by way of this consolidation. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that does not open things up for right. more diverse media because it's too expensive to run a newspaper. And again, this the degree of censorship on Facebook internally to just how the platform works or Google or whatever, like things that are opaque to us that we don't even see, it just makes things worse. Yeah. Uh, and, and I don't like the things are getting increasingly dangerous at this level because this lack of coverage of climate change in a serious way or mm -hmm. Medicare for all or things that affect people's lives. Um, it, it tends toward isolation. Like, mm -hmm. so we were, you, you had hosted a, a screening of a, for example, you'd hosted a screening of this Medicare right. for all film. And I'd sent it to the newspaper this week. Oh, that's interesting. And, and as far as I know, it didn't appear. Right. Um, you know, something that affects everyone that 70% of the population supports, ha over half of Republicans even support, um, gets no coverage. And then when we're in the meeting, it's, it's very small and it's people that, y you know, personally, um, and that's okay as a start, but even those people are sort of like, what do we do? We don't like, they, people don't know how to act because mm -hmm. they've been so disempowered. Mm -hmm. Not that they're not smart enough to figure it out, right. but like they the, this, the ideological training is that we can intervene and that nobody gets it. Everybody gets it. But if we don't see ourselves as capable of intervening, then we're not going to act. And that's the, that's the most dangerous trick that's played is 
like, and Chomsky goes into great detail about this in the manufacturing consent film about how it atomizes the population, makes people think that they're crazy and nobody agrees with them, even though everybody basically agrees with them. You keep people from talking to each other, they're not going to decide that they can, well, if we all agree, then everybody probably agrees and maybe we could do something about this. Maybe we could put pressure on politicians or the power structure. Maybe we could protest at the hospital about, uh, you know, poor treatment. Maybe we could organize workers at the hospital. I mean, Locally, we have one hospital. It's, it's quote unquote nonprofit, but there's everyone you talk to here has some horror story about that they've either personally experienced or someone in their family or somebody they know has experienced. And it's getting to the point where now when I talk to ultra employees, that's the name of the hospital, they'll openly tell me how bad it is, up to and including like people hearing on a weekly basis other employees saying to supervisors, then fire me. If you don't want this, then fire. Like that, it's just like it's basically in shambles as a institution. I'm not saying that you know. Again, this isn't a criticism of doctors or care providers. This is the structure of the thing. Where is the coverage of that, for instance? Because mm -hmm. uh, this this hospital serves a huge community of like the it it serves all these rural communities as well as Grand Forks. Um, like it's a but you know it's the same kind of principle of just like silent complicity for whatever you know reason and maybe it's a i wouldn't be surprised if it's an advertising question as well mm -hmm. no for sure the only thing i'd add to any of that is uh, i think the fifth filter we missed that you sort of alluded to is this I, i'm just remembering now from chomsky is the sort of reliance on the official authority voice oh, right. to sort of make yeah. a comment so to your point if um, if the authority figures in question the mayor the police chief whoever if they're not making statements or holding press conferences or saying anything apparently there's quote no news and that's oh, why we end up yeah. with stories mm -hmm. like the the thrift shop to fill space yeah right when there's actually a whole lot more happening but um if there's if even the reporters are sort of sort of inured to having to only report on what the official authority figure is speaking about. Right. There's nothing being said. They don't think there's anything to report too often. Right. And then it gets, e it's, it's easier to bury right. everything else. I mean, I was sort of by a sort of political cohort or whatever back in the, you know, a few years ago, getting not good at responses from sitting congressman who's made the mistake of holding a town hall in the most left-wing uh, district in the, the state. Right where I live, <coughs> um, the People's Republic of District, whatever, Ward 2. 40, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, but I had, like, you know, put the screws to him a little bit, and he kind of couldn't answer. And then afterward, I was frustrated. I didn't get a good answer, so I was talking to this other guy. He's like, it doesn't matter, because they got to write about something. Mm -hmm. So the point is to get it get it out. And, you know, he was right. They were writing. They were mm -hmm. quoting me and him and people who are, had critical comments. Um and so, like, there's a way even to co-opt that, what, what you're saying about the official voice. If you right. can go criticize that openly and publicly, then they're going to write about it. I mean, former Governor Ed Schaefer was, uh, made the mistake of going to University of North Dakota when I was taking a couple classes there uh, <clears throat> and stumping for oil companies. And his pitch was that we should lower the taxes on oil extraction because it will drive the business away which is ridiculous and nonsensical. And so I started pushing back. Um, and it wasn't just me, but I mean, I was maybe the first one who was, when he was decided to take questions, it was just like, who's going to pay for all these 
roads that are getting destroyed. Like you want to lower taxes when they're just shredding the Western part of the state. And then immediately the journalists literally run over to get my name so that they can quote me because you know, they want the juice. That's mm -hmm. kind of the game. Mm -hmm. So even that, like we can, so maybe that's something to think about. How can we take these filters and kind of like use yeah. it against the power structure? And there are ways to intervene. It's not, it, it's not the same as controlling the press, mm -hmm. but um, that doesn't mean that we can't uh, get things moving, which, which I mean, the Ilhan Omar uh, example proves you say the right thing at the right time or the quote wrong thing at the right time. <laughs> right. Uh, and it can blow up the whole political landscape and now because the the reaction as to your point about her the reaction to her proving her point most people didn't know what, what APAC was before right this. that's right um I didn't know much uh <clears throat> but now I mean like, prior to having seen that Al Jazeera documentary or half of it but now this is this is the conversation and that's the value of you know throwing those sorts of grenades, even if it was not handled as maybe well as it could have been in, in the first place. Mm -hmm. But I can't imagine she expected this response either. Right. From like a retweet of Glenn, Glenn Greenwald or whatever. But for her, it's just matter of fact, obvious stuff. Yeah. Right. It's same with what she was saying about, and this is pro part of this is definitely retaliation for her critic criticisms of the U S's desire to go to war with Venezuela or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, th that is not allowed. We, we can't we can't have sitting Congress people questioning the military industrial complex's desire to and or Trump's desire, whatever the hawkish version of like how we conduct our business in the world, um, which, you know, anybody who's taken a even marginally hard look at this will see that the U.S. is the biggest aggressor terrorist in the world by its own definition. So most destructive and. <clears throat> Like, I mean, to, so to sort of take a broader view of like these media filters, uh, it, a simpler example is that no one's really hearing about the war in Yemen, and which is backed by the U.S. Saudi, Saudi war in Yemen, there was an expected famine to, that was going to kill like 10 million people. This is just off the map politically in the mm -hmm. U.S. press. Um, if people knew what was happening and that how why that we were backing this, they would be up in arms yeah. probably, or at least they wouldn't support it, not the population, but all the more reason to hide the, the U.S. complicity. Um, and it just goes on and on. And the only reason that made any press coverage at all wasn't until the journalists sort of wanted to defend one of their own when uh, that Khashoggi guy was, was murdered mm, in the Turkish right. uh, consulate. And so then, then of course, uh, some of the media pay, start paying attention. Right? Right. But they, you're right, before that day, there wasn't this in the papers. Is, yeah, it's just totally off the map. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and the, obviously these are, like the point of this podcast is that we live in extremely dangerous times. And the, the part of that danger or darkness is precisely how hidden a lot of this is. Bringing it to light, sh shining a light on it in whatever form we can or um, observing who's doing it, at a, it on a bigger scale is as important as any, any tangible action we could take in the first instance. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, political action is necessary and it may be coming increasingly necessary. There was a guy in democracy now who wrote a book, a reporter who wrote a book called the end of ice. And he was talking about how the, the Himalayan basin is like they rely on 
the glaciers around the Himalayas for fresh water and the tributaries all told like this supplies fresh water for 1.5 billion people and this ice is going to be gone within probably by 2080 or 2100 i mean that's a problem so huge that we can't even we can't even conceptualize the scale of it really um and that and this is we're sort of like in terminal freefall climate climatologically um we are in a climate crisis in a climate catastrophe the great barrier reef biggest coral reef in the world is you know on the verge of just total like erosion it's just almost dead um and he gives some other crazy examples but this is you know we don't we, we don't have time anymore we don't have time to be to play long or be quiet or careerism is dead like which is why we see these young women and when i say young women i mean like high schoolers who are saying going out in public saying what's the point of they're they're going on strike basically they're walking out of school um because they're like what's the point of an education if we don't have a world to live in uh which is exactly the point i mean it's that's as clear as it gets and nobody can play dumb if you're an adult you can't play dumb anymore uh that's what's so powerful about this they know the stakes and they're younger they're supposedly like underdeveloped you know cognitively well they they get it they get it more than most of they get it more than almost 100 percent of the media establishment, mm-hmm. and that's intentional. That's paid for, mm-hmm. bought and paid for by, you know, the fossil fuel industry and their lobbies and <clears throat> um, everything surrounding that swirl in the U.S. And so he's just, there's no time anymore to be quiet uh, no matter what the what the situation, because we are literally in free fall. We are in the collapse. We're seeing the beginnings of it. And what you know what comes or does not come of engagement with that depends entirely on the effectiveness of whistleblowing like that the courageous acts of young people who have no power um who people don't even take seriously right but luckily these tools of distributed information are allowing for that this is something kurzweil talks about um He's, he, his claim is that the Soviet the real reason the Soviet Union fell is because of decentralized information technology. They didn't have the internet. They literally had faxes, but they couldn't be controlled. And so people were allowed to communicate with each other directly but without um, state intervention, without the fear of the Stasi. And as a result, within a few years, uh, all these governments fell. <clears throat> so we need to take the master's tools here, which is what people have been doing for a long time, or, well, you know, the last decade, uh, taking things like Twitter and Facebook or just, you know, the fact that we live in a 15-second f- news cycle and just blowing shit up as much as possible because mm-hmm. there is a possibility to get exposure um, and for these things to spread. And we see, uh, as you know, on a positive note, in the same vein, the Gilets Jaunes has, you know, is not stopped. Uh, the, the rolling French revolt has continued, but now it's spread to Haiti. Which is what happened in the French Revolution. Right. So the French Revolution. In the other direction, wasn't it? Or it started in France then, too? It started in France, but then the Haitian Revolution took the torch, and Haiti was a French colony, so they were revolting against the French. But then the Haitian, or the French revolutionaries invited the Haitian revolutionaries with open arms. So it was like a real political event. You know, the Haitian Revolution may be the most important revolution in world history. The only successful slave revolts uh, during modernity, I believe. 
But in Haiti, they're, they're rising up and they're overthrowing their corrupt government. They're going further than the French again. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, this is maybe a harbinger of well, the sorts of times we live in. These opportunities, um, I, I think we should understand ourselves as opportunists only because the opportunities are going to continue to come mm-hmm. as things continue to destabilize. But it's you know incumbent upon us to decide what the future looks like, especially in the West, because we have the most control over the most resources. That's right. And if we don't take advantage of the opportunities, we don't deserve the future. Or, yeah, we, <laughs> we get what we pay for there it anyway. There you go. Exactly. Or don't. So, yeah, but uh, that just, I mean, and this is Chomsky's point in Manufacturing Consent in that documentary. It's very, it's a critical viewing for anyone who hasn't seen it. Uh, it's on YouTube. The, the three-hour version, if you can, you know, if you have the time to watch it in stages or something, I think it's split into halves, but. It's really good. Yeah. All right.